0: your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen. and each episode, I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of top college or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and be full of behind the scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips to help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Erin Gu, InGenius Prep's Chief Education Officer. Erin recently attended the 2022 National Association for College Admissions Counseling Conference, and will be sharing what she learned from updates to FAFSA to evolving test optional policies. Hi, Erin. How are you today? Hi, Ella. I'm doing great. I'm really glad to be here. So you've been on the podcast before, but would you just like to tell us for new listeners about your background in education? I know you went to Harvard as well as about your role here at InGenius Prep.
1: Of course, of course. I went to Dartmouth College for my undergrad studies and Harvard Graduate School of Education for my master's in education. And here at Ingenious, I'm the chief education officer, which means that I oversee all of our work with students and I help make sure that we're providing the most up-to-date information and advice to our students and to help them put their best foot forward for their college process.
0: And do you also just want to tell listeners what is NACAC? Yeah, of course.
1: So NACAC is the National Association for College Admissions Counseling. So it is an organization that hosts local chapters and as well as national conferences that provides professional development and educational opportunities for folks who are in the college counseling space. So that includes both the admissions officers who are on the enrollment side or on the college side, as well as high school guidance counselors and independent counselors who are on the student side and helping students navigate their college process.
0: And you just covered who attends NACAC, the independent counselors. Is there anybody else that you find at NACAC? Occasionally, you might find some
1: folks in the the college space that's neither a guidance counselor or a a counselor or on the college side. So there are a lot of private companies that are in the space as well, like the Princeton Review was there and, you know, other companies that are in sort of this college space that's not necessarily strictly associated with the college or the high school side of things.
0: We actually did an episode on NACAC last year with Heather and Mary because they're, they're two of our former admissions officers and they attended. Uh, but you, have you previously attended any NACAC conferences?
1: I've not actually in the in-person conferences, so this was my first time to go in person.
0: Were there any surprises, anything you didn't expect?
1: Mm. It was a really positive experience overall, and I was very actually impressed and surprised with how many universities had representatives at the NACA conference. So on one of the days, they actually have a college fair for the high school counselors and independent counselors to learn more about the different colleges. And they were probably, you know, we were in a very large exhibit. Rome Exhibit Hall, and there were probably hundreds, like all of the top university that you can name, you can think of, they were all there. And so that was quite impressive.
0: You already mentioned that there's companies there like the Princeton Review and in your recap videos, which you filmed for our TikTok and for our Instagram, you also discussed that there were some showcases by higher ed tech companies like Score and Slate. Do you want to tell us more about these platforms, these companies, and then how they work in the admissions process? Because these aren't companies that students would be familiar with, like they're familiar with the Princeton Review.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. So Slate is a very big company in the college admissions sphere. And that is one that uh, our admissions officers are very familiar with, and especially in Genius, this is also where I learned of Slate the first time I heard their name. It's from our former admissions officers. It is the platform through which a lot of colleges and admissions officers are reviewing the applications that the students submit, right? So the students submit through the Common application and that gets downloaded by the universities. And on the universities' end, they are reviewing this information not through the Common App, actually. They're reviewing it through Slate. So the Slate helps them Process the information and make sure all the file is in one place for a student, matches up the different records, and then helps the university, you know, distribute them to the appropriate admissions officer for review and has all the notes and the other kind of functions you would need on the evaluation side and then ultimately make the decisions or mark the decisions that the admissions offices make about a particular applicant. And I believe it's also integrated to the notif- the decision notification process so that that is the, the technology behind the decision notifications that go to every student.
0: And is SCORE or The one you just covered is Slate, right?
1: Yes, that's right. That's Slate. And
0: and Score, is Score (laughs) similar to Naviance?
1: Yes. So Score is one of their newer platforms, and that's been around maybe in the last two to three years, spelled S-C-O-I-R. And it is more of a, like Naviance, like on a high school side, right? So they Mm. work with high school guidance counselors and high schools to help us, High schools organize their students' admissions data as well as school and college lists. So some students might actually already have access to SCORE from their high, high school and are collaborating with a guidance counselor on which colleges they're thinking about applying to. It is much more user-friendly and sort of up-to-date in terms of the technology and the user interface. And this year, SCORE actually replaced the, the coalition application platform, which was an alternative to the common application a couple of years ago and even at last year. But this year, the coalition is no longer functioning as a admissions platform or college application platform so instead students will use SCORE if they don't use the common application and those colleges that accept only coalition application will be accepting the application through SCORE instead.
0: And is that a current change that's happening right now or is that for the next cycle? It is happening right now,
1: actually. So the coalition application is no longer in use for this cycle. So if you're a senior right now and you were planning on applying for the coalition application, please note that it's no longer an option and you will be using SCORE instead if you don't want to use the common application.
0: Does it still have the same benefits of the coalition application? Yes, it does.
1: So it does have the, for for younger students, it has the longer term file storing capacity. And it also has the ability to invite, you know, other other adults to your file so that you can collaborate with them more directly. I believe parents also have access as well and can give inputs on school lists and things like that. So it does maintain Uh, Almost all of the benefits of the Coalition app from before, plus some additional benefits on the, especially the school list building side.
0: So anybody who's ever attended a conference knows that a big aspect of that are the individual panels. And of course, you can't attend all the panels. So today we'll just be discussing some of the NACAC panels that you did attend. So one of the first sessions you attended was about the Supreme Court case against Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill against their affirmative action policies. And the session, I think you said, featured admissions officers from Caltech and from the University of Connecticut. So could you just break down this court case for those of us who are unfamiliar?
1: Yes, of course. So the court case is now at the Supreme Court. So it's brought on by Edward Bloom and the Student for Fair Admissions. That's the organization that is suing Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill. They are suing those universities for Um, considering race in their admissions and making it harder for students of certain race to be admitted versus students from other races. So that is at the crux of the issue. And they have brought a lot of accusations and a lot of different ways in which they're making the argument that Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill are making these decisions not in a way that is conforming to the law. Um, And so that is the that is the case that is pending at the Supreme Court level at the moment.
0: And what is the timeline for the case? When we're when are we going to start receiving news about it? How it's panning yeah. out? When will the final decision take place?
1: Yeah, th- those are really good questions. So the only thing we know for sure right now is that the oral arguments for the case, which is where the Attorney debate each other in front of the judges. It's actually happening in a few weeks on Halloween. Monday, October thirty first is when that is happening, and so that's where you will see probably the first bit of news coming out again because the the case has been around going through the different court system to lead to the Supreme Court. So a renewed interest from the media will come around that time in terms of a decision. The court technically has until the end of their session, which is, I believe, mid-March 2023, so sometime in 2023, to make the decision. But as we all are aware, this is a new, a relatively new court, and they have been doing some very unconventional things. And so it is possible that a decision will come much sooner than that, like potentially even as early as January, as some of the experts were predicting on this panel. So the the call to action from them is for higher education institutions to be prepared to have a plan in place, whatever the results might be, and to be able to act on it starting January 1st.
0: And what are the consequences, whichever way the results go? So if the Supreme Court says like, yes, Harvard and UNC, they can use race-conscious admissions policies, or if they say, no, we're striking down affirmative action, what are the consequences in either direction? That's
1: a really good question. So in this panel, the the, the admissions officers, experts who are, and also some legal experts too, were on this panel, they were predicting, you know, sort of four kinds of results, only one of which is Harvard and UNC wins entirely, which it seems like is really a likely outcome, but it's a possible outcome. The other three outcomes are all, you know, there's some sort of limitation on the race-based or race-conscious policies. And what does that sort of, how severe basically is the restrictions on those policies, is the different levels that they were predicting. What I gather from the conversation is that higher education institutions very much believe in the benefits of a diverse student body and they want to be doing whatever is necessary and whatever they can to preserve the kind of diversity that they are seeing on their college campuses right now and they don't want the diversity to go away so that is there's a strong desire in the on the in terms of the actual class student class makeup that that they want to preserve, then it becomes sort of all in the the details of how exactly to achieve that and what are some things that could be considered because the Supreme Court could say that maybe race-based or race-conscious policies are not permitted, but except in the case of potentially how race is tied to identity and personal or lived experiences. Right. So that still gives a more limited window for consideration of how a person, how a young person has grown up uh, in, a, in the society and how their race might have impacted their lived experiences and how those things could be related. And so even in that situation, you know, you still have a little bit of an option for the missions offices to consider those things. And that wouldn't be the most sort of severe restriction in terms of the outcome.
0: Yeah, my follow-up question was how this might change like the application itself. So we know for law school admissions, they have a diversity statement. We know that NYU this year got rid of their NYU question and replaced it with an option optional supplemental essay about identity. Mm-hmm. So do you think there might be like more holistic ways that admissions consider identity through essays, through short answer questions, if they can't explicitly make decisions based on something like race?
1: Yeah, certainly possible and and likely, I would say that identity is definitely something that colleges are super aware of and want students to be able to talk about and artic- and better articulate as well. And so that is um, definitely a possibility and, and potentially a solution that colleges will try to get at this this the to to continue to build a diverse college without violating laws.
0: Another session you attended was with the MIT director of admissions and they discussed the MIT maker portfolio. So just to start off with, can you talk about how the maker portfolio works? Like what is this component of the MIT application?
1: Yes. So the the MIT application has some optional components for students. And of course, they have the typical art portfolio as well as music portfolio for students who have those talents. And that's true at a lot of different universities. But at MIT, they also about 10 years ago instituted a maker portfolio. Option For students who make things, you know, maybe they build robots or they build, you know, mechanic things at home or, you know, motorized shopping cart or whatever it happens to be. And they give the students an opportunity to talk about those things that they make. Um, and so they have a set of questions the students have to answer that asks about, you know, how did they get involved in this project, you know, what kind of resources they had access to, you know, who did they talk to when they were stuck, those kind of questions, and allow students to upload, you know, pictures of of their creations and, and basically explain how the project worked for them.
0: And is this pretty unique to MIT? Is there something similar to other
1: schools? So MIT was one of the first, if not the first to allow a maker portfolio. There are other institutions that have now added this optional component. It is not ubiquitous. And a lot of universities actually don't have the resources to evaluate those portfolios. And so that is part of the reason why they don't accept those. But there are some universities that that are accepting maker portfolios as well.
0: And so could you just give us like a summary of what this session was about? So was the idea that more colleges should be implementing these performance assessments? Yes. Yeah, so, so the session
1: overall is talking about performance-based assessments, which is basically the opposite of a grade-based assessment. So it's it's sort of like, if you think about a driver's test, right, we've all gotten our licenses. And in order to get our licenses, you had to pass a paper exam, which is the grade exam that that we're used to. And then you had to pass a driver's test, right? You actually have to drive the car and park it and, you know, stop at a stop sign and reverse and all those things to show that you can actually do the work, right? Like you can actually drive the car in reality. And so the the session is on sort of performance-based assessment, and that's what they would call the driving test. So students would actually be showcasing that they can do the things that they have applied the skills that they have required in certain situations. So the intention is certainly that instead of purely relying on things like standardized tests and grades, that there would be more opportunities for students to showcase their actual skills through performance-based assessments or performance-based projects. So, you know, talking through how they did something, giving a presentation, producing something that they created. And all of those things would constitute as a performance-based assessment. And so the the desire is to give students more opportunities to show who they are and what they can do, uh, rather than purely relying on the grades and test scores to, to tell that story.
0: And so you think this is like a longer term admissions trend that we might see in the next five to 10 years with more schools adding this?
1: Yeah, I think so. Maybe not make a portfolio specifically, but, you know, we are already seeing at the top level, you know, Williams College has always had a, you know, a, a, a working sample required for their students. And Princeton does too, like a graded paper. So those are all examples of colleges wanting to see for themselves the actual skill level of the students. And so I do think that over the next maybe 10 to 15 years, that that's the trend that we're, we're looking at. But I don't think that there's a significant immediate change that we're going to see from from colleges.
0: Is there any connection here between these performance assessments, the proposed ones or the ones that are currently here, like you said, with Williams and Princeton and like the idea of grade inflation?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think certainly there is, there is concern from admissions offices, right? With standardized tests going you know, away or diminish, diminishing in importance and universities keeping their test optional policies, they're relying much more on the grades from a particular school and from a particular student to evaluate how, how does the student perform academically. And there is definitely concern of grade inflation where, you know, more than 50% of your class are getting A's. Then it becomes much harder for an admissions officer to place the student's academic ability relative to their peers.
0: And so how can educators like teachers, high school counselors, how can they facilitate these opportunities for students? Mm -hmm.
1: That's a great question. So some of this is already happening at a lot of public and private schools where teachers are creating more opportunity for students to show competency in certain skills through performance-based assessments. So, you know, whether that is a project at the end of the school, teamwork, maybe they also potentially have portfolios of their work over time. So creating those opportunities where students are demonstrating that they have mastered those skills a a, in a product in an outcome rather than just standardized test rather than just doing those things is is very helpful in terms of the helping students create the the materials that they can eventually apply and submit to colleges
0: and do you think there's a question here of class of students who are in areas with more resources being able to kind of access these versus students in more under-resourced areas not being able to pursue these kinds of opportunities
1: yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it really depends on the high school and the instructors that are in those high schools. We do know that there has been a lot of um resources and training that are devoted to improving urban education, for example, and helping teachers in those areas to, you know, to to make curriculum more engaging and to to have more performance based assessments. It certainly is happening already. I don't know that it's ubiquitous and at the same level. And also I think the other piece of this is the is the standardized metric that states are imposing on their public high schools, right? Where students have to sit for certain tests. You have to pass the regents exam, for example, and using that to measure a high school outcome. And so certainly that is a tension. It's a big conflict, right? Where teachers have feel like they have to balance those things and how can they help their students pass the regents exam if, you know, if they have them all do performance-based assessments all the time, then they're not preparing their students for those exams either. So it certainly isn't the perfect solution. and, And every school will have a different set of challenges in terms of implementation.
0: And this is really more on the uh, side of educators and admissions offices, but are there anything that like students on an individual level, is there anything that they can do to implement this advice? Even for schools like schools that aren't Princeton or Williams or MIT that don't have these kind of portfolios, is there something students can do to showcase their practical experience and ability? I think
1: that it's, you know, always an opportunity for students to document just for themselves their their projects and their achievements, and then potentially put it on a personal website. You know, you can always sort of link it in your application, whether the admissions office clicks on it that's another story um, but you know at least you you can have the opportunity to showcase that i don't think it's required necessarily right like if you apply without it it's not like you're at a disadvantage but you, you know if you do and that is an integral part of who you are right like if you are just really good with hands on stuff and that you produce a lot of those things whether for your friends or for fun then i think it is a, a worthy effort to to accumulate some of that and and showcase that. You do have to be quite careful about submitting additional materials. Admissions offices are very clear about when they can or cannot accept additional supplementary materials. And so if you look at, if you submitted it, to a to a school that doesn't accept it, yeah, you'll just go to waste and potentially annoy the admissions office. That you did that, so you do want to be quite careful about that. That's why a personal website is usually pretty benign, but it's a good way to to show that. And the other place you would want to mention that is, you know, probably in your essays or in your activities list, even if it's something that you do meaningfully for yourself independently. A lot of times students might not think of putting it onto their, you know, activities list, but it's actually, you know, a meaningful part of who they are and how they spend their time, then it's still worth adding to that activities list.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of digital opportunities now. Students can use TikTok, Instagram, your personal website, like you said, to kind of catalog and record their experiences. Yeah, exactly. And I know you also attended a session that had some exciting news about FAFSA. So do you want to tell us about those updates and when we can expect to see them?
1: Yeah, so it is very exciting news for FAFSA, which is the platform that students use to apply for financial aid from the the government. So the, the biggest news is that they're working on an integration between FAFSA and the IRS, where a student's income data from their parents will automatically carry over from IRS. So right now, students have to enter their household income from this tax return and, you know, all of those things, which they're probably unfamiliar with. And also because their parents might also not be familiar with, right, especially if they come from an immigrant family, etc. or and, and don't have sort of the knowledge or the language ability to navigate a form like that. So that's the biggest Uh, announcement. It is not happening soon enough, in my opinion. I think we're looking at at least about two years out for that. But it is hopeful that they're working on that already. I can imagine there's a lot of integration and work that needs to be done to make it happen. But that is the biggest news. And they're in the meantime, they're making some small tweaks about the way that they ask some questions and about some of the answer choices that they're giving students, but nothing revolutionary at the moment yet.
0: And these changes are just driven by like benevolence, like just something that makes everybody's life easier.
1: Yes, for sure. I think colleges have been looking at the FAFSA, you know, sort of usage, I guess. And also FAFSA has been getting feedback from colleges as well in terms of why it's so challenging. They're also getting a lot of feedback from community-based organizations, CBOs that work with students that need extra support on colleges, but cannot afford extra private services, right? And so they're they're getting a lot of complaints from everybody involved, uh, how complicated it is and how it is a barrier sometimes for students to enter college because they feel like they can't afford it and they don't know how to get access to money, to financial aid, to afford colleges, making this much easier for everybody is hoping to increase access of students to colleges in the first place.
0: You also attended a session focusing on school profiles. So first of all, this is something, again, that's more on the counselor education side. So for students who don't know, I don't think I knew this when I was applying to college, what is the school profile? What goes into it? How does the guidance counselor work with the student kind of behind the scenes on their applications?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. So school profile is a usually one to two page document that a high school guidance counselor sends to the admissions office that introduces their high school. So it'll have information about, you know, obviously their name, their address, their location, as well as, you know, the demographic of students that go to school there, broken down by income or race. And then you will have important information like what kind of curriculum is offered, what kind of courses are available, you know, what are the graduation requirements and how many students go on to four-year colleges versus two-year colleges? And where are some of the schools that some of the students have? enrolled in the past. So it is a pretty, it is a summary, it's a quick summary of a high school, but it contains very important information to, for admissions offices to know the context of the high school and the community that a student comes from.
0: And so what insights did you learn? What are admissions officers looking for from the school profile that they're not consistently getting? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So one of
1: the things that admissions offices really find helpful is the grade distribution information. So it used to come in the a form of rankings. So where does a student rank in terms of their peers, right? Everybody in the same grade level. But a lot of unit you know, high schools have moved away from that, you know, in order trying to not create a lot of pressure for students and whatnot. But that does make it harder for admissions offices to evaluate how a student sort of pairs to other applicants, other students in their high school. So even without ranking an alternative, a helpful alternative is grade distributions where they tell the admissions office, you know, this percentage of our students score, you know, 90 or above in these classes, for example, or these this percentage of students have a GPA in this range when they graduate. So that is a very helpful piece 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 of information for admissions offices, and they would like to see that. The question is whether the high schools will be providing that.
0: And so it's obvious what they're looking for from counselors is to have this additional information. Is there any insights students can take from this?
1: Yeah, so the primary insight is that where you stand academically at school does matter and it matters a lot in terms of your college admissions. So even though your school might not rank and you might not know, know for sure, you definitely do want to be one of the, you know, if you're aiming for a super selective college, then you definitely want to be in the top of your class. You want to be doing better than a lot of your friends potentially. And 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 so that the academics is one of the first things they evaluate and that you meet sort of the bar for that. The other thing that I think students should take away is to even just know that a school profile should exist and to see if you can find a copy for your school. So sometimes they're available on your school website. And if you just search or your Google, or you can always ask your guidance counselor for a copy and see if they would be willing to give it to you. And so you can see what are some of the information that an admissions officer would see based on your context. They They might be able to see that there's a special program that's available at your school. And that is also helpful for younger students right? Even if you're in eighth or ninth or 10th grade, maybe you haven't heard about all the opportunities that are available at your large school, right? So a school profile would be a good place for you to go see, oh, like these are cool opportunities that are special, special for my high school. So I can plan on getting involved in that in later years.
0: We have a private Facebook group that has about like 25,000 members. It's called the College Admissions Corner on Facebook. And a lot of the times people ask about, you know, oh, should my student take AP physics? These are like the seven AP classes my students take and should they take blah, 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 blah. And I'm always responding like, you know, you got to ask the counselor, you got to look for the school profile because like you said, it is really helpful for those younger students to be able to see, you know, that's like an easy resource for them to see if their rigor really is at that level, especially Mm -hmm. if they're wanting to apply to more competitive schools.
1: Yeah, yes, exactly. So for a student at a school that only offers 10 APs, you know, taking seven is great. But if your school has, you know, 15 then 7 is not as good as if you if you had 10 right
0: and then here's an exciting topic everybody likes to ask about you attended a test optional panel with admissions officers from UPenn and UCLA so what did you learn what were the new insights
1: Yeah. So obviously these two schools have different testing policies. So UCLA has gone completely test blind. So for the UCs, all of the campuses, they used to evaluate students on, you know, like a 14 character or 14 factor scale, I guess. And now they just dropped the testing. So now it's down to 13. So for the admissions officer from UCLA, what they were saying is that it really makes not a real big difference because you know difference between 13 and 14 is pretty small it's not like one to two right difference so for them it has been working just as well without the test score and it makes things a lot easier for them and and they think that test blind policy is really easy to explain to students and families and there's no confusion so they really like their policy and that was sort of the main takeaway there for you, Penn, I think Penn just had their new director of admissions, Whitney Saul, who came from, I believe, Bowden, and then one other university. So Buden is one of the ones that has always been test optional. I think it's the first one in the country. And so so she's at Penn and they are still looking at their data from the past two cycles to evaluate how well test optional policy worked for them in terms of the kind of students that they are recruiting, whether there's any difference and they're not making any formal decisions about their policy for the future until that work is done. So that's where we are. But I think the main message that everybody was trying to communicate was that there is no disadvantage if you apply without a score. So I'll say that again, there is no disadvantage if you apply without a score. So if your score does not match your academic ability, you know, does not match your GPA, you don't think that it reflects your ability as a student, then, you know, leaving it out uh, does you no harm. So that that is sort of the main takeaway for students who are borderline it's going to be a little bit harder to make that judgment call. I think that is where a lot of the confusion exists where colleges actually different colleges have slightly different language around test optional. Some schools say you know if you have the score we want to see it Um, so in those cases probably better to send your score even if you you know aren't super happy with your score. Some colleges will say you know you know, like it is totally optional. You know, if you have it, we'll consider. If you don't, we won't consider it. It makes no difference. So, in those situations, it's probably better to leave it out. And so, it really becomes quite nuanced, and and definitely means that the the burden is more on the students to figure it out, which I also didn't think was fair to the students. And it would be much better if all the colleges could get on the same page. But we know that's not happening
0: anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't one issue that these colleges actually can't like talk with each other about their admissions data? Like, UPenn can't call Dartmouth and say like, "Hey, Dartmouth, like, how has test optional been working for you? Like, share your data with me." I believe I, I could be wrong, but I believe Heather told me that was like an issue currently. Yeah, so they,
1: they they can't have direct access to the data, that's for sure. They can talk and then mission and one of the things that I learned from the from the conference is just how small that world is. It seems that everybody knows everybody else, and there's a lot of connections and emissions officer, of officers move from in between institutions and, and they also sort of learn from each other. Um at conferences like that, where they talk to each other and they also talk to each other when they travel. So there's a lot of anecdotal stories going around, but they cannot access the actual data.
0: And what is the reason they can't share that data?
1: You know, that's a good question. That is
0: not one that
1: I actually know off the top of my head. So I'll try to ask some of our former admissions officers to see if they know.
0: Sounds like a good blog topic we could do. Another topic at NACAC, which is kind of fun to say. But was committee-based evaluation CBE? So talk to me about that.
1: Yes, so committee-based evaluation is one of the newer formats admissions offices are using to evaluate a student application. So we all know that a... Uh, admissions office divides their territories through regions, and there is an admissions officer that's responsible for a single region. It used to be that all the files for that region comes to that admissions officer. They do the first read of all of the students' applications, and then they rank them or they give some kind of notes and some recommendations for whether to admit the student or to waitlist them or you know to reject them and then those files all then get moved to a second reader to verify and to see if they agree right to just to get a second opinion so student files are getting read by at least two people fully and then the committee will meet and they will discuss those decisions together so Committee-based evaluation came about to change that part of the process. So the rest of it still remains the same, but instead of admissions officers reading alone by themselves the first round, what they're doing is now committee-based evaluation means that there's two admissions officers and they're paired together to read a stack of files together. And what they do is that they, I believe, split up some of the components of a student's application when they so that you know one of the readers reads parts of it the other reader reads the other parts of it and then they talk live through the student application to say I noticed this you know I noticed that this seems to be a component of the student fear. and I think this about the recommendation I think you know this about the student's context and then they sort of talk through and see if they agree in terms of their assessment of the students. And so it, from the college side, it is a lot, it makes the admissions officers work a lot more enjoyable. So they're not, you know, reading files by themselves, you know, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and probably have to work overtime for it. And while maintaining the fact that student applications are still being read by two people, and they're also comparing notes and learning from each other much more quickly, and they can pair different admissions officers on each day or different weeks or something and so you also uh, from the college perspective build more community between the admissions offices officers and so that they understand each others contexts and regions much better and much more quickly and it is also a good sort of training process i guess for new admissions officers and so that you know that they are learning live from the more veteran people and they don't have to do sort of specific training sessions they're sort of just learning by doing
0: Is there an element of like bias reduction in this process? Is that a benefit?
1: Yes, definitely, because you have two people who are looking at the file together and the chances of them agreeing 100% of the time is pretty low. And they also check each other's biases.
0: And are there any schools that we know who are already utilizing this process, who are piloting it?
1: Yeah. So this process actually came out of Penn and, you know, they they seem to be the innovators maybe in this regard because they were also the first ones to do early decision, right? Like that was a program that came out of Penn as well. And so it's been around for about... I wanna say like seven or eight years, and other colleges have slowly started to adapt this process. And so, especially as small liberal arts colleges, we we heard from I believe Bucknell is doing that, and I think Oberlin as well. So those institutions are are on board with that process, but not everybody is there yet. I think there's probably maybe 30 to 40 universities that are doing this. Um and the rest have not. So, for example, Duke University hasn't transitioned yet because we had the, I think, the Dean of Admissions or Associate Dean of Admissions from Duke ask a question at this panel about how Penn made the transition and, what, and, and how they addressed some of the concerns from their admissions officers to make the transition. So we know for a fact that Duke is not reading through CBE yet.
0: Is this scalable? Is this something that we could see like at the UCs, these places that are getting so many applications? No.
1: Unfortunately, probably not. The, the admissions offices do say it is more efficient for them in terms of time hours for the for the hours for the individual admissions officer is smaller. But overall, you know, hasn't really changed. They just sort of changed in terms of when that work happens. But I, I'd imagine for large universities and especially universities that are admitting sort of by majors like, you know, UIUC and, and university, the UC system, this is probably not really doable. They they would still need the old ways of reading individually to, to, to preserve some of that efficiency.
0: Were there any other topics that were just Important topics of discussion at NACAC or other admissions trends, changes that you'd like to discuss or that you've learned about. Yeah, I
1: think that some of the some of the trend that we're seeing is that the universities, not all of them, but some of them, have started to warm up to working with private counselors to help them understand a specific region to help them understand maybe even the high schools that are in that particular region to build those relationships and to help promote their universities because they know that you know with the atrocious student to guidance counselor ratios it's like 400 students to a, to a guidance counselor at public public high schools on average um the students are not getting the help they need from their high school, and so there, there needs to be independent counselors to help serve these students. So they're having more of those interactions and connections, and there's a lot less stigma around that, and then you also see more admissions officers switching desk to go on to the high school side or the the private counseling side of the desk and so there's more understanding i think across across the desk but of course there are also still universities that you know refuse to work with independent counselors and they only talk to high school guidance counselors for example and i think that'll probably remain but that number is dwindling from what i'm seeing the other trend that a lot of colleges have talked about talking about is that they're they're anticipating in the coming years probably in the next decade or so with the population shifts that there may be drops in college enrollment just because there's fewer young people in college going age range and so that is something that they're all trying to prepare for and trying to make their institutions a little bit more resilient in the process
0: and what that what might that resiliency look like might we see more like online degrees two years degrees these kind of programs at more traditional universities?
1: Yeah, so there are lots of different ways colleges could be doing that. One is obviously sort of building up their brand recognition more and to to offer higher quality education and for, for students. And then also, you know, figure out ways to make college continue to be affordable for them. And so it's sort of like, businesses right Businesses have to think about their branding and their positioning and so colleges are doing the same and yes to in terms of your your question you know colleges are also thinking about what are some other ways that we can offer degrees to students you know whether that's two-year or online degrees especially for non-traditional students you know making the college experience more accessible for them where and more affordable for them right where they might be working already and doing school at night, what do they need? And what kind of services do they need from the school? You know, they might not need all the clubs and all the dorm activities. So what, what else do do they need in terms of their support, supporting them?
0: And how have or how will these insights and these changes, how will they shape the work that we do with our students? Are there any plans that you have for changing the curriculum next year? Yes, for for sure. So part of the part of the, the work that we do is
1: to think about, you know, how to help students better prepare for their applications. So certainly things like, you know, portfolios or performance based assessments, helping our students you know, collect the things that they're producing now so that they have more of that for potential application materials. Of course, part of our job is also to help them assess the quality of their work. You know, it's not worth submitting something that is not high quality or you would hurt your application. And so that is something that we're constantly doing for our students. We're watching the court case very closely to see how we think that might impact students. And we're Working on curriculum and resources, and you know, opportunities for students to practice their reflective writing ability, so that they can talk about their personal experiences in ways in which the admissions offices can understand, so that they can better uh, answer those identity questions, so that they can better address those concerns from from colleges, and of course, we're you know, continuing to push our students to challenge themselves academically, so that they are meeting those base baseline criteria, but also. Like, one thing that, that I didn't mention in, in today's meeting, but is have because it's not new, because it's how I always been the, the case is sort of this idea of sort of fit, right? Like, you know, what kind of college experience are you looking for? There are so many choices, and they're all so good and in their own different individual ways. So what are some of those things? And another Um, idea that, that we're definitely going to be working more on is to help our counselors and our counseling team to understand the different colleges much more in depth and be able to recommend good programs and options for our students and really be the experts in terms of our college knowledge so that we can, you know, direct students into the right places to start their research.
0: And the college admissions landscape is evolving so quickly, especially since COVID. So how do you recommend students and families keep up with these evolving admissions trends, changes? Is there just certain resources that they can keep abreast of?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, self (laughs) shameless plug here for our podcast of course which always has very good latest information i think the other platform is you know like you can try to get the newsletters from NACAC. they put out pretty good information the other one is chronicle of higher education which is the the newspaper or journal that covers the higher education landscape and you will get a lot of, of up-to-date information there in terms of from both the the college side as well as the high school side mostly the college side so you know what the colleges are thinking about in terms of next moves for them so those are really good resources to to do and then of course to continue to talk to your guidance counselor and because they also have good contact with the admissions offices directly and so they will probably know the latest trends that are happening in a particular college as well
0: Yeah, NACAC actually has like a podcast network, so you can just Google NACAC podcast network and you'll see the other work we're part of it, but you'll see the other counselors and the other podcasts that are part of it. Very good resource. And then do you have any additional words of wisdom to share for students, families, counselors? Yes, I think the biggest takeaway I have from NACAC is that this is
1: such a complicated process. Students and families are left oftentimes in the dark to navigate this by themselves. And it can be very stressful, um, even, even if it didn't have sort of the weight of the future of the student's future on the line. Just the logistics of it and just the information of it can be overwhelming in itself. And then add to that sort of all the personal expectations and emotions that are involved in this process. It really is a tough time for students and families. So we know that it's complicated. So please do make sure that you're using whatever network and whatever resources you have at your disposal to get some help to help you navigate Understand the information that's out there, as well as getting the support you need to make the, you know, I, I don't want to say the right decisions, but to make decisions that you feel comfortable with. Because often, most of the time, there is no right or wrong decisions anyway. Students always end up at places that they're happy at. And I think at the end of the day, that is what matters the most.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Erin. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into the 2022 NACAC conference. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or would like to quest a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag insideadmissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.